0: So the title that I was given today to talk about was The Challenges of the Church in France, Challenges of the French Church in the Seventeenth Century. Uh, I have and you have the text in your desk, but also when you have to spend a just a one period and you don't have the history before, sometimes you miss the whole story. I'll try to give you from a book that I've written, that's not published yet, that I wrote to give classes to our seminarians in the Special Year of Spirituality. I give it twice. We're ready. We go closely. We'll be publishing it. You have the text of that in the back on page. It starts on page 29, but I will be used on the page, uh, mostly starting on page 30. When the history, when you, you want to, I write in there, that uh, knowing our history, knowing our past, helps us understand the present better, knowing where we came from, our country, our family, even our genetic genetic makeup helps us understand ourselves, and now it 's so fabulous nowadays we could we can map where we are from, you can even send a sample of your DNA to the, the, the Genome Project, and they'll tell you the mapping up of where your genes came from. And it's fabulous that they show, in, and there's a nice, uh, you can check that out with the National Geographic in the Genome Program. They show that we all come from North Africa, you know, and how people, and they can follow the genes where people split up with those who went to Europe, those who went there. All of us, different race, different right. We all come from the same, all the homo sapiens come from the same origin. And so that is it. But when we try to look at the history of of Europe here, that we are partly influenced, we go back, and I I know I've written something there, you don't see it, but I'll point it out to you. You have it all in the the book, in a sense, but I try to give it in a graphic way, is the beginning of the church was during the Roman Empire you have the picture there it's not in color like mine but it shows you that the roman empire that lasted about a thousand years in rome it ended in 476 the last emperor that was the the situation when christ was born and it was what permitted the church to spread all around the mediterranean mediterranean well, mediterranean sea which the roman call Mari Nostra. We mean R. C. And you can see why. You, know, you just look at a map, they own everything around. And that gives the chance to the church to spread. Saint Paul in particular used the Pax Romana, the P, the Roman peace, the fact that you could travel all over to, to really set in centers. He went to place the Juggernaut, I would call it place that are importance. He went to Antioch of Syria. He went to Ephesus. It was a great port, seaport, all in what is now Turkey. You know, when you go to Syria, it was the capital of the province. Everybody went there. He went to Corinth. It was in Greece between where the passage of the seas, all oh, there were so many sailors. If he converted some, they went all through the empire. He went to um, Philippi and over there in the north, and all those areas which were on the route to Constantinople. It was the Roman roads. So he really chose, then went to Rome, the center of the Roman universe at the time. And that helped spread the word throughout the empire. And you have that spreading in there. But when Rome fell in 476, Byzantium had been founded by, Constantinople, by Constantine, who very humbly named the city after himself. So he called it Constantinopolis, Constantinople. And that city continued to last after Rome fell It lasts for another 600 years after. It lasted a total of 1,000 about. And it fell to the Muslim, to the Ottoman Empire in 1060. And that's the correspondence I put here when William the Conqueror, six years later, about conquered uh, England. So it gives you in your mind those great figures. But I want to give that to situate. So what happened in Europe at uh, the fall of the Roman Empire? Well, one of the things that it did is to give... The church remained the only structure in place that was when there were little countries that fed up the chieftain that, that settled, and gradually you had little kingdoms that settled. But the real uniting power was the church. And then when the the barbarians came, the invasions of the baron, the Vesigoth, and all those things that you've heard, they gradually got converted, and they in turn influenced the church, the influence in the liturgy. One of the important group, the one only uniting group after the the fall of the empire, came about eight, uh, in 800, around the, the century 800, with Charlemagne. Charlemagne was part of a tribe of the, the Germanic tribes called the Franks. And the Franks had gradually been in, in invading france what they gave the name to france and also french but they were of german origin now i'll come back to that because it's important for our history is that charlemagne united what you saw you see on page 31 you have the view of what his empire became it didn't cover all of an empire but it covered a good part of europe what is germany and a lot of the countries of Europe here, he didn't conquer Italy. He he did, was the master he could control. And so he's the one who gave the central part of Italy to the Pope, making the Pope the king of the papal states. The reason he did that is that because in Byzantium, which had become Byzantium, Constantinople, the, the patriarch of the East, which he had separated from the Catholic Church, the Orthodox was always under the thumb of the Empire Emperor, and sometimes made him do things that were not very orthodox and so he wanted to give the the Pope some power, he made him a king, which lasted you know up to eighteen seventy when we finally lost the papal state, which we consider now a blessing, because you see the Pope as the head of state these days I mean he has that in the spiritual power is all we need and so this the the Franks were um, invaded settled when the um, his empire Charlemagne didn't last very long his sons were not the same quality as his and he gradually broke into parts but France rather consolidated is one of the few countries that became cohesive meime united germany was only united before you know in the late 1800s really uh, so but france became more and more united and be- and under the empire there was another part of france was normandy normandy of course as we know is very important for our history because that's where st john Ute came normandy was invaded about the time that charlemagne started to at the end that was the ninth century. During the ninth and the tenth century, the Norm the Norsemen, the Vikings, started to gradually come down south. They invaded part of England. They vetted here on the but they also mainly a lot of them came and settled in what is called Normandy. And it's called Normandy because of the Norsemen, the Normans. So we have a real Norman here within Father Gerard who is here. My family is mostly from, originally from there, but it's been a few hundred years, so we lost the accent. The, um, so what happened here? We have William, There is a descendant of, uh, of is a Norseman, or is a Viking, and he, when he invaded England, then Normandy was part of the English kingdom up to the 12th, when when the famous King John of Robin Hood Lost it, so it became integral part of France from then on what after what happened is that after the um, the um, Roman Empire fell and the disorder gradually, it became what we call the middle ages the middle ages it's the time between the the end of the Roman Empire to the beginning of the what I call the Renaissance now in the middle ages. There were all sorts of smaller country, etc, but it was the domination the, the system was very different i won 't go into the details of that because it 's not a question of time importance, but again, the church had a great role the the spread of monasticism, and the church was the one who kept the culture going through the monasteries. But the culture and a bypass is that we really got it uh, from the Muslim because we had lost all the Greek all the, the Greek philosophers, the artists, etc. cetera, had, had been lost. And gradually, with the contact through the Crusades, through Spain, through Byzantium, to the fight, discovered at that time, the Islam, Islam had become very highly cultured. They had preserved all of that. And then when that started to be translated, it became a new birth. The Renaissance means rebirth, renascimento in, in Italy, David. That a new birth it's coming the culture came to life a lot of the things that have been dead and it mainly affected in italy the florence was the center of that and milan and all but florence in particular where the, the study of the the greek philosopher and all that bring a renewal of the of the great arts and the in, interest in that not only the ancient ancient language but the philosophy in art it was wonderful you just have to see the vatican you have to see the painting and you have some of the examples i give in your book you have the figures like michelangelo leonardo da vinci and all those figures they, they call them polymart. they gave the name uh, of a renaissance man a person that has multiple knowledge that is very cultured that and at the time it was possible to knew practically everything that was written but not now today. If we have a computer that can help us and we can go to Waikiki, we can see all, all that we need. But uh, the Renaissance man came at that time. Although it did a great deal for the arts, it didn't have the same effect on the church. Because it brought also a rebirth of paganism. Although we kept the structure of Christianity and it went on, it affected greatly the 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 moral fiber of the country the church continues there was a lot of people there was a lot of monasteries but gradually you know it became all right to do whatever you wanted uh, it was the and it started from the head one of the uh, there's an interesting book meaning in the church the the papacy there's an interesting book by barbara tuchman i like or tuchman depending how you pronounce it uh called the march of folly she wrote many different books and she's a great storyteller she died just a few years ago and in there she illustrates one of her theories that she found in studying history that individual groups and even countries will act against their own self-interest and she gives further the model of it was the the trojan horse where the the greeks were were at war against troy but that they convinced the Trojans their gift, the horse, in which they were hidden, and they do. And people didn't see anything wrong with that, except there was a minority who said, you know, this, this is ridiculous. These are our enemies. You can't trust the Greeks. And, you know, the, from the saying, beware of Greek bearing gifts. Well, that was, that's where it comes from. And in fact, they were right, but nobody listened to the minority. And then he gives three other examples. The Pope of the Renaissance, the, um, the English during the American Revolution, and the Americans during the Vietnam War. But I won't go through that, but just the Pope. In that story, it shows that the papacy, the popes, worked against the Church for 70 years. Now, is that not a proof for you, to you that the Holy Spirit is with us? I don't know. Some a lot of people feel terrible about talking about what happened in the Renaissance. The Pope. I think it's illustration of how, I you know the the doors of hell would not prevail, because it was horrible. And what happened is that very wealthy, very powerful Italian noble families took over the papacy. Among them, the Medici, the Medicis, who were the dukes of Florence, who were you know the the uh, the patrons of the art, etc., also dominated with other families, the Neri and other things the 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 papacy and 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 they are then the corruption entered into into the church incredible for us and we'll see that later the corruption that happened so there were movements there were people who were trying there were always the voice of the minority just like what happened with the Trojan horse there were reformers all the time that were saying this is horrible it's got to change Three of the names that I mentioned—that was a Dominican in um, Florence, that uh, Savaranoli, who was preaching against Alexander the Sixth, who was the worst, of Borgia. He was really the worst of all, the rather not uh, exemplary Pope. But he managed, with the Medici, to have uh, this reformer burn at the stake as a heretic. That was one. And I think that these days should be canonized, but then there was in England, there was uh, Wycliffe, John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe wanted to have the scripture bring to the people, translated in English. He was burned, I don't know if he was burned at the stake, but he was condemned. Anyways, very, and then there was in the Czech John Van Hus, who was uh, still a hero for the Czechs. You go to to Prague today and you'll show the square where he was burned at the stake he wanted communion species, beware if you ask for things like that, you know. It became... And but I'm summarizing. There were other things. Well, basically they wanted to change the church, and they were all saying it's got to be done from the top. Not at all. They had no idea of doing from the top. But so the reform was not taking root, but it was moving. There was real discontent all through. And it was in the German state through that it, it finally broke, the, the the water broke, if you want, that it happened that here it was Martin Luther in 1517 17, who published his thesis, his 95 thesis on the door of the Cathedral of Oxford. And then it opened, the, the time was right, others had been condemned before him, uh, but he managed because he got some of the nobilities also were reacting to Rome. It was the the exaggeration of the of the the Roman trying to build the Vatican city to build the Vatican church, and they were trying to they were selling indulgences in other words, Tetzel was going around, and it was very unpopular, but people really believed that they wanted to save their souls and they were ready to pay especially the rich paid money they built monasteries they got you know they could have lived, but it was Pushed to the extreme, and Luther at first reacted to that, but then he reacted to everything, and he went to another extreme. He broke the the um, he really uh, broke the communion. Uh, You have another figure if you want to read about another one who was also for reform, but didn't break in the about the same a little later was Saint Thomas More. The life of Saint Thomas More. Saint Thomas More saw all the and everything else, but he wanted to do it within. And he points out in his history that how much he, you shouldn't do it with anger. Anger does not produce love. Do it with love, and he was worked within. And although that he was beheaded, he knew what he wrote to Erasmus and everything would survive him. And that uh, that in, in the end it was he had to maintain communion. But all his history it told you that everything was boiling. There was the the plot that brought the, 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 that brought when Luther started, and others with Calvin in France that went to Geneva, others that started it was beyond control. And then what happened is that kings and dukes and nobility took one side or the other. Sometimes for religious reasons, a lot of time for economic re- reasons. You saw for in England, for example, he sort of made the compromise with the English Church. By seizing all the monastery and selling them, he saw and they owned practically half of the country, he solved his his financial problems and also he maintained the outside of the church in other countries, it was not the same uh, and so the war broke out and in France, and now we will come to that to the seventeenth century France I'm just going to give you some of the the kings here that I will refer to. In my conference this is the introduction the setup so the reformation breaks down and that's the 16th century and just before we come to the 17th century luther there i'll come back to the, to these two later so in france there was one of the medici was queen there's two of them that came mary of medici was married to the king of france they had three children three boys they thought they were assured of succession no problem and uh, i'll tell you why they were so catholic in a way in a while but there was henry the third there was three childbirths i didn't put them all it's it's confusing enough the way it is so they all died young no children and so the third one that he was and henry the the third realized that he had no choice but to name his distant cousin successor the distant cousin who became henry the fourth was a protestant and most of the country were catholic they were still fighting they were in the war of religion they had been massacred even when henry while he was still protestant got his wedding in paris there was a big they, the uh, the massacre of the saint bartholomew i think they they, saint bartholomew, they they massacred most of the protestant nobility that came there and others so that was not to make peace so Henry, the Henry, and I'll I'll just mention them, and I'll come back to Henry later. So he was finally assassinated, and he he was the king when Saint John Johnude was born, and then and his uh, even his father Isaac met him once, and then his son was nine years old, Louis the and so his mother, another Medici, Catherine, would married Henry, and his third wife. And uh, she hired, so to speak, Cardinal de Richelieu, the famous and very good politician, uh, Cardinal de Richelieu. And he lasted out. St. John Ud is the one that gave St. John Ud the papers that signed it to make him, let him start the seminary in, uh, in Caen and the the beginning of the congregation. But he was replaced by Cardinal de Mazarin or Giulio Manzarini, he was an Italian. You know, the queen was Italian. He was Italian. He changed his name into French, but uh, the, it, he was, and he was also a very powerful prime minister. Until Louis came of majority, when he was 18, and when Mazarin died, he never replaced the prime minister and he ruled by himself. Absolute, uh, the, the king, uh, absolute power, they called it. And he, he ran all the time. And one of the things that uh, Louis did, because during this time, there was a lot of, of fighting. The nobility was always trying to take over. And as a kid, he had to run away with his mother because the troops were coming. When he came in power, he said, I'm put them in their place. He built Versailles. You have a picture, you know, you have probably many of you have been there, this huge palace outside of Paris. Don't leave it in the capital because then the people can, mobs can come. Put it far away and... Everybody, all the, nobil- the nobility had to come live at the court. And if he didn't have them under his eyes, don't ask for any favor. Because he, if you've been, you have the the, the the corridor of the mirrors, they used to walk and they would line up and he would walk. And apparently he had a good memory, at least in the early days, like all of us. And he, he came, would come and ask him for a favor. And he would refer to the prime minister, but Usually if the people were not there or he had not seen, he said, we never see them, which means don't ask. You know? So people learn, so he control a lot. So he was the king. And you have all the pictures of these figures there in your book. But I, and that was the introduction to really try to answer the questions that was posed to me. What was the situation of the church? And that comes to the conference that is the middle that you can read later. Uh, that will cover the things that you didn't get of what I said. The main historical event that greatly determined the situation of the church in the 17th century and up to the French Revolution, which was 1789, all that period, nothing much changed in the structure, at least official, of the church during all those periods the problem, but there was an improvement, was the signing of a concordat. A concordat is a, is a treaty signed by the Vatican with a country. And the, the, that was called the Concordat of Bologna. It was a year in 1516, a year before Luther published his thesis. And why that? It's because the King of France, Francis I, we won't go into reason why, but Francis first invaded northern Italy, trying to get some concession from the Pope, and the Pope was the Pope Leo the 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 from the from that same family. Yes, there was a relation to to the Queen of France and all that, and is he was advancing toward the Duchy of Florence and the Papal State, and the only recourse he had was the roman emperor who was not interested i mean the roman the german emperor uh was not interested in helping him at that time so he had to make some concessions and the concession that he made was to sign the concordat of bologna well the concordat of bologna the result made tremendous concession to the king of france it gave him the authority the right to name all the bishops of France. Oh, he had to ask the Pope to, to uh, approve of them, and they rarely refuse, unless sometime, you know, when there was a little tension, they would delay uh, for some time. But eventually I don't think there was too many that he outright refused. Sometimes you wait till they died, but they still refuse. So and also the main leaders in the church, like the great abbeys, the abbots. And the thing that was not only could he name anybody that he wanted, uh, whether they were worthy or not, he also got the revenue when when a bishop died or was moved, there was the see they call it was vacant. There was nobody on the throne, so to speak. And so there but the each diocese made their money from rents, they own land, they own monasteries, they own that. And there were revenues that came well the king got the right until the nomination and the approval of the next bishop that he would get most of the revenue for the diocese and then once so sometime it took his good old time naming a bishop and they were there and then for the first year after the bishop was installed the pope kept the right to having the revenue of the vatican to the vatican called the anati was the tax it was hated by all the bishops of course so both of them were benefited from that and in a sense when the when the reformation broke out not so far afterwards because you know it's a few years but when really broke up it helped keep the king of france on the catholic side because not like like uh, henry he didn't have too much advantage to break out The pope approved his candidates he could name who he want he sort of controlled the church without being separated they were still united with rome and certainly there were other reasons i'm sure i don't want to to say that there was not any other religious reason why they wanted to be catholic but at the same time for a kingdom that was always broke because they were always at war having a guaranteed income because people were sort of not only forced to go to church because there was a lot more control than today if you didn't go at the time you were fined. you know We'll see. So what was the effect of the term of the Concordat on the French Church? I asked The king had always had a lot of influence in naming bishop But the Pope in the past could appoint other people and they did appoint friends of his We'll see, I'll mention the Diocese of Coutances in the book that that is in your bibliography. And there was, I I remember, one Englishman, there was a few Italian. Of course, they never showed up. They didn't come and stood there. They got other people to do the job, but they got the revenue. They got the income from there. But now, only the king could do that. And so the, the bishop that succeeded were all French, but they were all part you know they've supported the king to bring us that bring us to two of the main two of the main problems if not the main problems not only of the church of france but the church in general at that period and it was absenteeism and it was the accumulation of benefits or of tax meaning is that at that time the majority half to the majority of the bishops and the pastors did not reside in their parish the author of the book that you have in your trent uh, what happened at the council give two examples he said in the diocese of grenoble southern france on the eve of the reformation only half of their parishes only half of the pastor resided in their parishes And in the Diocese of Geneva in Switzerland, only 20% of the pastors resided in their parishes. Their duties were performed by vicars, priests hired by them for the task. Similar figures prevail in many places for bishops. Jean de Lorraine, uncle of Cardinal de Guise. De Guise was a major noble family in France. And de Guise was finally, the cardinal that the king of France sent to the Council of Trent that we'll see in a moment. So they were higher ups, you know. They, the, his cousin had one, three arch, well, archbishop of three dioceses, three archdioceses, and nine dioceses. Now, by location is a big thing, but you know, twelve is a little too much. I mean, impossible. He never went probably in any of them, but maybe he did, passing through. So that was the commutation. Later on, uh, and there were many others like that. Richelieu, I didn't go, I didn't do a lot of research because there's an exaggeration figure, but he was bishops of many dioceses, abbot of many uh, monasteries just for the revenues. And he built palaces, etc. So that was common practice. That was it. And the practice of distributing dioceses parishes and abbeys to the royal favorite was called in latin at commendam which means in trust in custody and in the 17th century the famous oh no I'm, I'm, uh, it was and in french was called la commande you hear that you see that sometime in quotes but it means in custody or in trust and said as said in the previous previous uh, part that the pastoral work in the parish were often done by hired priests who had no benefits, the benefits mean you had the benefit of, you get a salary, in other words, they were not salaried. And the same thing as where pastors, like you have two benefits, if you want to use 17th century term, in this parish, you have two priests that are paid by the di- by the parish to work. Well, if you didn't have, then you have somebody who are part-time. And then there was a lot more priests, because there was some advantage of being a cleric, and some people by vocation or just because they were looking to get a benefice, would be ordained and the bishop might have or may ordain somebody if the family signed a contract saying that in if they don't have a job the family will take care of them so many of them live with their family and look for little jobs here and there to maintain and they were that type of people that were hired to do the work in the parish it doesn't mean that there was no services but the one who had the title got the most of the money. So there was not that much to fix the church, to do other things, and and it's the same thing for for the bishops at least, had to be ordained, and so did the priest. And but and the bishops were either called suffragans, that's the word they use, and they could have been administrator of the diocese, fully delegated by the one who had the title who, and, and the revenue to do that and administer the diocese. And others were uh, auxiliary bishops that went around and did all the confirmation and the ordinations. They were all paid by the one who had the title and they were just whatever you wanted to give them and kept that. And some had it for a very long time. I'll give you some example. Others were priests that were uh, canons of the cathedral, the chapter of the cathedral they call canons, who, who were officiate. they were sort of the council of the bishop also were supposed to pray for the dead and they got uh money that were left to say mass for the dead they lived on that some of them were named to do the visits because it appears that in most dioceses they did the visit of the parish they went to check how the church was doing if the priest was celebrating mass if the sacraments were administered if the seminary was, was taken care of if the school was working if there was and different things like that we'll see one of them, the successor of St. as superior general, Jean-Jacques Blouet de Camilly, was superior of the seminary of Coutances twice. And so during that period, he was an official visitor. And we'll, I'll come back to that. But if... I only have 10 minutes, my God, I'm going to talk faster than I did now. So what happened is that if the priest had to be ordained and the bishop... They, those that they named as abbot were not necessarily priests. They would just give him to a good friend of his, who was a layman, and he hired the monk to do the business there. But it brought and kept the on. Some reformed their lives, like the famous Abbé de rentry who formed the, who was a uh, commendatory abbot of La Trappe in, uh, in Normandy. And he went back there and reformed the monastery, became a real monk, and it is the origin of the Trappists today. What did the Council of Trent change in the situation of the Church of France, and the whole church? Of course, I'll have to summarize briefly, but the church uh, were, were divided by the reform. And there was a religious war, The whole countries were lost mostly. And there was the principle that was emitted later on at the Treaty of Oxford, is as goes the king goes the, the religion so that each king decided what was the religion and no, there was no tolerance, except for Henry IV, who did, did the edict of tolerance for the Protestant in France when he converted to Catholicism, none of that. So they were either persecuted or left the country. And, but, the, but you think that the Pope would have rushed to change things. uh uh-uh. They were not interested at all. The Pope and most of the bishop were the product of the system. They were benefiting from it. They they did not want to change anything, and especially when it says that it should, the change should start from the head, the prince, the, the pope, the curia, the cardinals, all those people, nobody. So it took eighteen years. The it took twenty eight years before the pope, a pope, convoked the first session of the council of Trent, and the council of Trent started in fifteen forty five. Luther was in fifteen seventeen. And he did it because he was coerced by the emperor, uh, Charles V. And he was not very enthusiastic. And a lot of countries didn't send anybody. It was a lot of Germans, a lot of Italians, because the pope said, you have to go. You're from the papal state. I'm paying your salaries. So they went. And overall, it, the, the, the Council of Trent lasted 18 years with long intervals between the session. The French king saw the the council is a German-dominated affair and sent nobody. Besides, he didn't think France needed it. He was in control of everything. The church was in good hands, in his hands. The council was the, the, only at the last session that he sent the Cardinal of Lorraine with a small delegation, and they were very efficient in making some progress at the council. The, it's first, the council was in many ways a failure. It was, its goal was to reconcile with the Ruthrum. Well, by then it was too late. The divisions were solidified and nothing changed. The only good thing it did, it sort of conciliated, the, reconcile the Catholics to themselves. In his epilogue to the Council of Trent, which you can read on page 9 uh, there, he says the, uh, in his book on Trent, O'Malley says, In the middle of the 16th century, the Catholic leaders of Europe decided under pressure to play the dangerous game of a council. As the Council dragged on for seemingly endless 18 years, they came to reconcile with ever deeper anxiety and frustration what was a treacherous game they were engaged in. The fact that the 25 sessions of the Council, fewer than half were able to publish decrees of substance, suggests that the course was anything but smooth. The Council of Trent lurched from major crisis to major crisis, each of which of which the stakes were pretentous for the future of the West, when it finally concluded on December fourth fifteen sixty three none of the players had reason to be perfectly satisfied with the outcome. The decrees now so it you is why come we keep talking? I was surprised when I read that in a sense because I had always heard a lot about the Council of Trent got Trent, Trent Trent remove the church. It was not Trent. It's what they call the Trent effect. In spite, and that's why I say the Holy Spirit had to be there because the bishops were certainly not full of the Spirit. Some of them were, and those who were there. And the Catholic reformers were not pleased at all. None of the decrees had teeth, you know. They were mostly a recommendation of the formation of seminaries, for example. It was not an obligation, it was a recommendation. All the pious remarks on what should be a good priest and a good bishop. Were not enforced. They were pious consideration, but what happened is that it created a movement of reform. It create it created something, and then there were models. One of them was uh, was Carlo Borromeo, or, or better known as Saint Charles Borromeo, who himself was a product and a beneficiary of that nepotism, that corruption. He was the nephew of Pope Pius IV. He was named Cardinal at 22. He was named in charge of the, the, Arch, the, the, the Archbishop. He was Archbishop of Milan. He was named as the equivalent of the Secretary of State of the Papal State. But he surprised everybody, because he always been a pious kid. He thought, well, make that a priest. You're going to be a priest anyways, whether you want it or not, because he was the youngest. But he became a reformer. He became a model bishop. He became an example for all of Europe. He, he called a uh, synod in his diocese. He published the Acts, and they were spread out throughout Europe, and all, it, they became the model of wanting the one. Once I remember a teacher talking about the Borgia that was so corrupt, and I said, how come there's a St. Francis Borgia? And the teacher said, well, even lilies can grow on manure. Consequently, the reform... Uh, what was the quality of the clergy of, Fran- of during the French during the 17th century. Well, the question is complex. There were some good people or not. The, the decrees were not published, but they were models. Another bishop that was in, was a Frenchman, but also was bishop of Geneva, was Saint, the one who became St. Francis de Sale. He was very influential. He was a model bishop also. People, it became wanting to imitate him. And they were figures, although the, they didn't change the fact of the command, there was a, an interest in naming better bishops. And there were influential figures that came. The lay people were very influential. The friends of Saint John Eudes, Jean de Vernier, Gaston de Renty, and the ladies in, in Madame you have that brought in their salon the books of Saint Teresa of Avila, the Imitation of Christ, of Saint John of the Cross. And you had then the the Cardinal de Berulle, uh, that founded the Oratory of France when John Eudes joined, Saint Vincent de Paul, Saint John Eudes, Monsieur Ollier, all of those founded new congregation with a new spirit of reform. They founded seminaries. They went and preached, tried to renew the spirit of the people, and it changed. In a recent book by Michael Hayden called The Catholicism of, of Coutances, which you have in your biography, he reviews the, the diocese of Coutances for 440 years. And he took, including the, up to the French Revolution. And in that, he looks at that period, what sort of bishop were there? There were 30 bishops in that period five of them were good bishops there was one in the 14th century one in the 16th in the 15th century not there's only the one in the 16th century was just at the end the last three years who became bishop there up to the to 1620 when you know the the, the childhood of john youth and then at the end some of them they were no saint the matignon and the other one that we saw that were work but they, the one that invited John Hughes to come in and start a seminary and do missions, because he did, and the others, he said, they were uh, nine were not interested in anything but their own money, their own glory, and there, and the others were in between, yeah, not too much. So you see, in spite of that, the church went on. But the movement that happened, that you have all the texts that said the the five best evidently believed. Uh, anyways, I'm going to skip that. The Although this period can be seen as lack, and the progress of the reform through the visitation report, although very few titular bishops visited the parish, they always send somebody. And they send someone, and we can get a good idea of what happened. There was, and There's enough, he says, about Blouet de Camille, the, the there are enough records of Blouet's visit available to to make it possible to obtain an idea of the content and the style of his visitation. The content was standard for the 18th century. His question concerned the parish church, the cemetery, parish finance, the performance of Easter duty, the schoolmaster, the school for girls, the midwives, the legitimate, legitimate relationships, and the resulting children. Louis de Camille was less harsh than Douay's predecessor in dealing with those who failed to make their Easter duty. In most cases, he announced that if private admonition had not produced compliance, there would be public announcement for three consecutive Sundays. Only the few who had not performed their duties for many years were threatened with excommunication. excommunication. So you see, didn't do your risk to duty, it became a big affair. Uh, Up to the French Revolution, until the French Revolution, the practice of command continued. That's the conclusion. I won't sue that. Uh, The summary... But there was an effort to naming better king. king. With the tremendous challenge for the Church of France, they'd gone through the years of religious, the weak king, all that came. There was a gradual movement. And really, although it was not officially led, the bishops and the king, the royal power and the, 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 the... did not head the reform in France, but it happened. It happened because the people wanted to, because the dedicated laymen, dedicated priests like John Yudes and Ollier and others worked at it, and gradually it transformed. The monastery transformed because they brought, it was the lay people, John Yudes and Virul, who brought the Carmelite to give us a model, and others gradually joined the visitation. They joined, they brought the visitation from Vincent, and that it was the spreading movement. It was, but it started first with prayer. They started to gather in those ministry to pray and to study and to influence the coming. So ever dark you think that our age there's a lot of people who complain about our world is going to pieces the world has always gone to pieces except that it always there is resurrection thank you